Hey, good morning and uh, welcome to Hope Fellowship. We're glad you're here, whether you're joining us on campus or at church at home. It's really great to see you this morning. Things are a little different, I know. I'm not standing on the stage in person, as the term we use now, but I'm on the screen. But I'm, I'm here with you anyway, but the most important thing is God is with us. And so I'm waiting on a COVID-19 test to come back, and so out of precaution for you, then I wanted to uh, just come to you by video today. And so I wanted to share with you again from the book of Romans. So grab your Bibles or devices, turn to the book of Romans chapter 4. We're going to start reading in just a moment from verse 1. What I've discovered about Romans is that Paul has a way of reminding us about things that we kind of forget. He starts it out in those first three chapters. He's reminding us about our depravity, about the bent of our heart for sin, that we are initially evil people. And then all of a sudden, when he comes to chapter four, it's like a hinge. He changes from what he covers in the first three chapters to something very different, but it's a reminder of something that we already know. We're going to talk about that in a moment. What I realize is sometimes things happen in life that reminds us of things that we've forgotten. A few uh, uh, days ago, in fact, this past weekend, Reva and I had the opportunity to have two of our granddaughters. We have three now, but two of our granddaughters, Emma and Abigail, with us. Excuse me. And we had them for a a weekend, and we we were so excited about that, you know, because we had them without our parents. That means that had them without their parents so we could do all kinds of fun, crazy things with them. And so we had kind of forgotten what it's like to have small children in our home. So we get up Sunday to go on an outing, and we get in the car, and we get ready to go, and we pull out of the driveway, and all of a sudden, Reba realizes we didn't bring a diaper for Abigail. Well, that's problematic, right? And so we come back into the driveway, go into the house, get the diaper, get the wipes, get into the car. We inventory, got everything ready to go, head out. We get to the exit of our development, and all of a sudden, I realize I have not brought my wallet, I have no driver's license, I have no keys, I have no money, I have no house keys, and most importantly, I don't have my mask with me. And so we turn around and we go back to our house for the second time. When we pull up in our driveway, our neighbor, who is a father of two small children, is standing in his front yard laughing at us. And so I roll down the window and he said, ah, I bet you forgot what it was like to have small kids in your house. And I said, absolutely. You see, what Romans does in chapter 4, it reminds us of something that we have forgotten or overlooked. We need to refocus on. We've already been reminded of that, of our depravity as human beings. But what God does through Paul in chapter 4, he reminds us so capably of of that, of that, that our righteousness is by faith and not works, is what it reminds us about. It's something that we have known, that we're justified by faith and not works in our lives So a couple of things he talks about in this chapter this morning. First, he talks about how we boast, that we boast in our works, our good works with God. The second thing he talks about is that if we have faith, then what is the object of our faith? What's the object of our faith with God? And the third thing is that who are we boasting in or who are we trusting in? So it's Romans chapter 4, verse 1, and it says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, he said, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted, this is important, beside the word count, write the word credited to him as righteousness. So the first thought being a question is this, what then shall we say? It's how he starts out this chapter. He says, what do you have to say now is exactly what he's saying to us. 
Why does he say that? Because he connects four with, with chapter three. Here's what chapter three says, and this makes this transition for us so beautiful. Chapter three, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? He asks us that question. It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith, Paul says. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is about our tendency to begin to boast in our lives about the good things that we do for God and how good we are in all the boxes that we check off within our lives. You see, Paul says, hey, what do you have to say about all the good things that you've done for God? That's exactly why he words this verse that way. Do they earn you anything? He says, have they even earned you heaven? Is kind of what he's asking us. Because the boasting, what we realize, is excluded because of our faith in Christ. So we boast in what? Uh, not our works. Absolutely not. But our works are not the basis of our relationship with God. But and it's not the basis of our justification, he says. Justification, oh, that's a judicial word. We've talked about that many times. It's an important word for us to understand today in our teaching. Because when we think about justification, we think about justice, and we think about the court system. So we realize that there are there is God's uh, judicial system, and there's man's judicial system. And there's a difference between the two. But first of all, we know from the first three chapters we're guilty. We're not only guilty, but we've been convicted of the sin within our lives. So that's not the debating issue here. The debating issue is how are we treated in this judicial system? Because in man's judicial system, we can be found not guilty based on a technicality, or we can be found not guilty based on a very good attorney that we might have. But yet, when God's judicial system, we are guilty. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. In fact, we're caught with witnesses. We're caught standing over the body with a smoking gun, so to speak. So there's no doubt about the guilt within our lives. But here's what happens in God's judicial system, that God does not just find us not guilty, but God justifies us. And that word simply means that you and I are found innocent, as if we have never sinned before. There's not a court in the land that could ever pass that ruling against you. But God does. And that is justification. And it's not by works, but it's in our faith in believing that God is able to justify us. We're going to talk about that for a few moments. And so Paul says, hey, let me explain this to you by using Abraham. And so he uses Abraham with the Jews because to the Jew that Abraham is the foundation of the law, even though that Abraham came before the law itself. And so what every Jew knows, as he's speaking to both Jew and Gentile, but what every Jew knows is that they know the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, because they're a product as that great nation of that promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. So what we realize is this, that Abraham is the earthly father of the Jew. He's also the spiritual father of every Gentile. And when we understand that, what we realize is that if Abraham could not be justified by his works in who he is, how could you and I ever be justified in our works as who we are? It just doesn't work. We have nothing to boast about. That's where Paul leaves us. And we could put together the most convincing case to support who we are and what we've done in life, but it would still 
not justify what God has done within our life. So what happens is this. Jesus steps in. He pays the price. He not only finds us not guilty, but he finds us justified, and that is that we are absolutely innocent as we've never sinned before. It's something that the Christians in Rome had forgotten, or they had just failed to look at in the fullness of what it really was. And so he reminds us with the story of Abraham. If we're going to talk about Abraham, then let's read from the book of Genesis for a moment. It's Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, and it says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram is Abraham. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I have continued childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my uh, my heir. And, and what he's saying is not Eleazar of Damascus, God. There has to be someone better. You have to do something better than that. And verse 4 says, And behold, the Lord the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir, but I'm sure he's thinking, but I'm childless. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he was counted up. There's that word again that we find Paul using in in Romans chapter four, the word also credited to him as righteousness. Can I talk to you about the word credited for a moment? Because how it's used here is a very passive sense. And I think because of that, we misunderstand the word credited. Because what does God credit to us? Well, our first thought is this. If our works are good, then God credits to us reward, right? So if we do good things, then God rewards us with heaven. That's it, right? But that's not the way the gospel works. Because here's the thing. God is not obligated to do anything for you even in the face of your good behavior. God is not. God does not reward us with heaven because we're good people. No. He's not obligated to us in any way. Absolutely. The adverse is absolutely the truth of all of that. That God works without any obligation. God works through graciousness within my life and your life. That heaven is not a reward for my life and your life. We just check it off the boxes. But it is a gracious gift of God to those of us, you and I, who do not deserve it. You say, well, then why should I do good works? And well, I'm not saying that works are wrong. That's not the point. That's not the point at all. You see, Paul is not saying that we should not strive to do good. In fact, the scripture says that we are known by our good works, right? In fact, it, it says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and people know that we are disciples if we have love one for the other. So we understand that. But where we have to really separate that from that of God's righteousness within, righteousness within our lives is this, that our works are not sufficient in our life to earn salvation. No. That, and so the beauty of that is that when we love, we're not loving within ourselves, but we're loving as God loves through us. So if Abraham can't, if Abraham is unable to earn his way, then how could you and I ever earn our way to God? How is that possible? And so what this does, the beauty of all of this, it frees you and I, not within works, but actually within faith. Because it's, it's, if it's about works within my life and your life, then what do I do when I get it wrong? That's the question. 
if this is built of me just being good, so God rewards me, and so there's this reward system with God because I've been really good, what happens in my life when I get it wrong? Because if you're like me, we get it wrong many more times than we get it right. So where does that leave us with God? That leaves us serving God out of fear. That leaves us obeying God out of afraid of God's punishment as somehow our relationship is based on some punitive relationship with God. Here is the thought. Abraham believed God. And when Abraham believed God, it was counted for him as righteousness. It wasn't that Abraham did all the things right with God and then God counted righteousness to him, but it was that he believed. So God through Paul, lays this out for you and I to understand. He says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So what we do, we look at this and we think, oh, here's the way I work. If I perform a task, then I'm paid for that task. And so when the boss brings me my paycheck, he doesn't bring it to me in a Christmas gift wrapping because it's not a gift, right? No, it's an obligation on his part to pay me because of the work that I've rendered toward that person, him or her. It is. And so we don't look at it as a gift either. In fact, most of the time when you get your paycheck, you say, wow, is that all there is? Or I'm really worth a lot more than this. Surely I am. No. It's how we approach God, though. It really is. That I do good things, God rewards me with heaven. That's how we approach him. That I, that I obey and because I obey, I'm accepted. We have said this so many times in our teaching here at Hope Fellowship. That is not God's economy. God's economy is this, that I'm accepted. And because I'm accepted, then I obey God because I obey God out of love within my life and not out of fear within my life. So if I'm loving you because I just want heaven as a reward for me, then that's not really love at all. That's not about you anyway. That's a lot about me, isn't it? Trying to earn something from God. It redefines how I love my neighbor. And we've been talking about that a lot. I don't love my neighbor just so I can get heaven as a reward. That's not it at all. But my obedience is based on that of I'm already accepted by God. And because I'm already accepted by God, I obey God out of love within my life. So he says, okay, here's the way it works. He says, verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And you think, Mark, you probably read that wrong because you said justifies the ungodly, but that's exactly what Paul says here. His faith is counted as righteousness. How, how can the righteous God act unrighteously? You know, that's kind of what this looks like, right? How can the righteous God act unrighteously? Unrighteously. And when I look at this, I realize it's through the cross of Christ is what this is through. Yeah. It's through the shed blood of Jesus that God loves and God justifies you and I. And he doesn't justify the righteous, but he justifies the ungodly. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It's not that we work and expect to get paid by God. It's that we believe, we believe on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous. And when we believe that, then righteousness is credited to you and I. That is the gospel. That's the way God's economy works. That God is able to accomplish what he has promised. That's the basis of our faith. And that is not the desire or reward, but yet that we believe God is able to do what he has promised. And that is that he simply counts the, counts the uh, ungodly righteous. And, and what a beautiful thing that God does in our life. And when we believe that, 
when we believe that promise of God, then what we understand is righteousness is counted to us or created or, or credited to our lives. You know, it's more than just you and I believing God in a very general way. It's more than me just saying, hey, I believe that God is real. It's more than that. What it comes down to in that of that redemptive work of Christ in my life, it's believing that God simply causes the ungodly to become righteous. That's exactly what it is. It's believing that. Yeah, and, and when we believe that, when we understand that, when we believe that redemptive work of God, then, then we, simply, we simply stand on that in the very face of the times when the enemy accuses us because he's the accuser of the brethren, the scripture says. In those moments in our lives when, when we are, are bent on evil, in those moments in our life when our behavior doesn't match that of what God would desire for us to, to, to behave as, that when you believe the truth, when you believe the truth of the redemptive work of God, then righteousness is, is simply added to you, the scripture says. So here's what verse 6 says. Just as David, and not only does he bring, not only does he bring Abraham into the picture of all this, but now he's going to bring David, right? And so he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. I love this text. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Listen, when you look at who Abraham is, he's the foundation of what it means to simply be Jewish. When you look at David, man, in in the Jewish life and culture, there was no king like David that ever ruled Israel And it says that he's blessed or he's favored, that word means. How is David favored? Because when you look at David's life, hey, he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, right? He covers up that sin by sending Uriah to battle to have Uriah die in battle. Basically, he murders her husband is what he does to cover up his sin. But then God says, but he's favored with forgiveness. Wow. His sins are covered. That... He credits righteousness to David and not his sin. That's far beyond what our human mind can really, I think, logically wrap its mind around. And it truly takes the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to that understanding. And for some of you that struggle with forgiveness in your life today, you struggle with the list of things within your life and and the disappointments that you have caused others and you say that there's no way God can forgive me, or if God has forgiven me, it's not at the extent of what he's forgiven other people because they've not done things like I have done. Here is the reality that God, what he does in our life is this, that he credits He credits righteousness to us. He counts righteousness to you and I, not because of the good things that we've done in life, but yet that we believe that God can and will forgive us. That's the way the gospel works. It is. So verse 9 says this. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Now hang on, because I'm going to use that word a lot. It makes us uncomfortable when we use that word, you know, in, in an audience like this. But hang on, because Paul likes to use it. So here he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Was it not after, but before he was circumcised? 
And, and, I, and I look, what does this all mean? Well, it's very important that he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That's important. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. How then was it counted to Abraham? It wasn't by surgery. That's what he's teaching us. It wasn't by religious observance. It's not by how many times you go to church or how many times you take communion or it's not by how you have been either confirmed or you have not been confirmed or you've taken your first communion. It's not that at all, but it's about our heart. It's about an experience with God that righteousness was credited to Abraham before the religious act or the law. We realize that before that. If it had been credited to him simply um, after the law had come, then what that would mean for you and I is this, that we would earn points with God today is what it would mean. And most of us, including me, would be at a deficit with God. And we'd be trying to earn our way to heaven. And we would look at heaven as a reward because we had been good enough within this life. But it's not that at all. Because when God wrote these words and when God even put all of this into existence in the book of Genesis, he was thinking about us. He knew our fallibility He knew the bent of our hearts and he was thinking about us. He was. So verse 18 says this. In hope he believed against hope, speaking about Abraham, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall our offspring be. I know I skipped about six verses. Go back and read them. They're powerful. But he said, so shall your offspring be. And he did not awaken or he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. I underline that because we know a little bit about his history, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So a second question, what is the object of your faith? Our faith has to be anchored to something. That's the point. That's what Paul is saying to us. It is either anchored to you, it's anchored to your religion, it's anchored to your church, or it's anchored to you working for a reward from God. Abraham believed in a very specific promise that God made to him back in Genesis chapter 15. And he lives his life around that promise. From that point on, he lives his life out around that promise. He and Sarah are going to have a child, but yet they are childless. And when I read verse 19, what I realized, this is about God's power within our life. This is about not about medical help, because when I read this, what I realize is this. There's no medical help for him. There's not. He's depending on God alone. Because I think many times what we want, we want a faith that's a little bit of us and a little bit of God. You know, 25% of, of God 75% of us, because we got to help God out in this whole situation. We really do. Because if God fails us, man, we got to have a safety net. Hey, Abraham and Sarah, they're close to 100. What safety net do they have? What's the plan? There's no fertility specialist to go to. No. It's, It's what we do with God, I think, so many times, is God needs a little help in our lives. And what I realize is, in my life, your life, that we're broken and we're busted and our heart is bent towards sin. I understand that. 
and God loves me exactly where I am. And, and God loves me where I am on my journey today. Realize that God is not waiting around for some new improved version of me that's going to come along next Sunday morning. But God meets me exactly where I am, even in those moments of doubt within my life. Let me read you verse 21 through 25, and we finish up this chapter. It says, Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, talking about Abraham, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. I love this verse. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believed in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Fully convinced that God was able is what it says. But was... Was Abraham fully convinced that God was able all the time? And when I look back at his life, I realized, hey, there's two times that he lies about Sarah being his wife, and he tells Pharaoh and King Abimelech that Sarah is his sister because of the fear in his life. When Sarah hatches the plan that God is too slow and they're getting too old to have a son, then what does Abraham do? He goes along with the plan and he has this thing, you know, with Hagar, the the, the maidservant of, of Sarah, and they have a child who we know by the name of Ishmael. And what I realize, it's not about perfection. We say this a lot, but it's about process and progress within my life. And, then, and with Abraham, it's the same thing. It's not about perfection, but it's about the progress of my life. Being convinced that God is able doesn't mean that I never have another human moment within my life. And I think that's where you need to hold on to today. It doesn't mean that you never waver in your faith. It doesn't mean that you may doubt at some moment. It doesn't mean that you take things into your hands at some point. But it means that you're believing that God is able to do what he says And yes, there are going to be those moments when you're going to doubt. That's going to happen because you're human. But you know. And when you believe that, the Bible says that God counts to you righteousness. Even in your imperfection. Oh, that's the beauty of all these. He said, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. That this is not just about Abraham, but this is about you. And this is about me this morning. And how... How do you see God's promise of righteousness? How do you feel? And I say this as we tie this all together. How do you feel when God says to you that you're forgiven no matter what you have done in life? How do you really feel about that? Is there moments that you're vacillating between, yeah, I believe that, but the other moments you're thinking there's no way that God would ever forgive me? A lot of us have those moments within our lives. But I think the question is, do you believe that God is able to do what he's promised? as it relates to this chapter, and that is that what God does with the ungodly and what God does with you and I, that when we believe the Lord, that it's counted to us for righteousness, when we believe that God is able to do what he said he would do in our lives when it comes to redemption. I'm not doubting your salvation, but what I'm questioning, questioning you is that how much do you really believe that God has forgiven you? I think that's so, that's so important for us to deal with. So what is your faith anchored in? What is your faith anchored in? Is it anchored in your good behavior? 
Is it anchored in trying to work for a reward, maybe like heaven? Is that what it's anchored in? No. Here's what he, I think Paul asks us throughout the book, and especially through this chapter, who do you boast in? So who do you trust in? That's more what we kind of can understand. Who do you trust in? Paul continually, I think, challenges us with this question. And you'll see this more throughout the book of, of Romans. Who do you boast in? Who do you trust in? Where does your trust lie? Because Abraham holds on to a very specific promise that God gave him concerning a child. And that child does come in his his name is Isaac. And we know how God works through him to create this great nation. And, and from that becomes, becomes the savior of all humankind. That promise simply says that he brings righteousness to the ungodly. Not a reward. That's not what this is about. Because there any reward from God is graciousness, but yet this is about forgiveness. So how do you really, how do you process that part about forgiveness in your life today? So for a moment, would you just uh, maybe for a moment wherever you are at home or or you are in the building, would you take a moment just to bow your heads and let me say a prayer with you for a moment, Father. We thank you that we're forgiven today. We know, God, what your word says, but you know how our heart struggles with this. And you know how we are as humans bent on this thing of work and reward. And so, God, you've taken that and you've reversed that as you do so many other things in in Scripture. And what we realize is that we are first accepted by you. And because of our acceptance, we obey you out of love in our lives. And so today, Lord, as we deal with this thing about forgiveness within our lives, that we realize that we, if we believe that, if we believe that you have done what you said you were going to do when it comes to our redemption, then righteousness is counted to us, not because of our good deeds, but because of our belief in you today. And Father, we thank you for that, for that changes our life and that changes everything about our existence. We thank you for your, for your forgiveness this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.